welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of The Effect Podcast. Let's get ready to rumble! I'm Dave. And I'm Matthew. And uh, as you might have guessed from that title, we're looking a little bit at sport in Coriolis, in the Third Horizon. And also, I think we've got a bit of a rumble going on in um, in the Forbidden Lands as well. <laughs> but before that, we've got the world of gaming to talk about. Quite a lot's happened there, so um, I, I won't I won't spoil it now. We'll we'll get into that in a moment. <laughs> now you'll spoil you'll spoil it in a minute. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, uh, as I say, then you're going to be talking about sport on the Third Horizon, Dave, and I'm oh, sure yeah. we've got lots to talk about after that. Uh, and then we've got another player in the Hammam. And this time, it's, uh, I think, the first player in the Hammam who's also one of our patrons via Patreon. Um, and that is uh, our old friend, Andy Brick. So we'll have a conversation with him yep. in a while. We haven't got anybody to say thank you to this month. We've got no new patrons <laughs> joined us. So, uh, guys, if you like what we do, and you want to uh, support us and help us grow this podcast, uh, then then do consider going to our Patreon page, which is Patreon slash Effect E double F E K T, and uh, and consider supporting us via Patreon. But I think what I will do anyway, though, is just again a continued thank you, a continued continual. Continued. Continual thank you. Yes, another, we, another we don't thank want you. to stop just, thanking just our patrons. To all our all our patrons who uh, support us right now and get involved. Um that's great. Yes, because whatever they contribute, they do so every month and um And we never take you for granted because uh pay our hosting fees. No, no. <laughs> we haven't got anybody specific to give a shout out to this month no. is what I mean. Just uh, and then I've got a piece about a village you might not have heard of in the Forbidden Lands called Brightwater. Um, no spoilers yet. Uh, I might do a bit of a trigger warning before we uh, before we play that piece at the uh, and for that reason we we'll put that at the end. Um, so that's what we've got yeah. in the program. Shall we just crack on with the world of gaming? Let's crack on with the world of gaming. And the uh, I guess the biggest news this week is the fulfilment of Forbidden Lands uh, Kickstarter for the Bitter Reach, which closed earlier this week with a total of. 3,584 backers. Um, oh, very nice. Um, I'm not sure That's how many... 3,584 potential listeners, Dave. Absolutely. Yeah, well, indeed. And But why aren't they listening? Come on. If you, if you like... Well, they might be. And they might well, well Some be. of them might be. They might yeah. well be. I'm not sure how many stretch goals that turned into in the end, but they were frantically making up new ones as it was going along. I think it was all the stretch goals. I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, know, certainly. Twenty they, odd. Wow, that's not bad going, is it? Twenty, twenty stretch goals. And so that's somewhat more than one hundred thousand Swedish kroner that they've raised as well. I guess as well. I'm not sure, actually, how much how much they did raise in total. I'm just going to have a quick look. But it's it's excellent news. Um, I can't wait, really. I mean, it's looking brilliant. I think the just. The, you know, the sense that we get from it so far and the you know the, the the artwork and all the rest of it is the same standard as always we expect from the guys from free league and then having talked to um magnus theater to get a real sense of what where he's coming from i'm really excited by this one 
yeah, it's it's going to be great. I can't see. Of course, how much... I didn't back it in the end, but um, but I'll be looking to get it in retail as soon as I can. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to turn this into a political thing, but let's hope the Kickstarter situation gets sorted out and there's some real clarity over what's going forward in the future. Um, yes, sooner sooner rather than later. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm rather hoping now that the union have made a formal request to be recognised that Kickstarter recognise them. So there's another thing I really want to back, but I uh, I can't at the moment add mm-hmm. my own principles. I'm not suggesting anybody else boycotts Kickstarter, but I am personally. Um, no, but I, I think so, you know there's there's uh, you know if Kickstarter are as good as their word, which is you know if they want to if the people vote for a union they'll back it, although you know they won't oppose it, they'll go with it. Then um, you know hopefully it'll it'll clear up. But yeah. getting, getting back to Bitter Reach, they, they raised a total of 2,302,706 kroner, which is about 200,000 quid. Um, wow. Maybe even a bit more. 230,000, 240,000 quid. So... Uh, that is good. That is. Yeah. I mean, that is. And a lot of that comes brilliant. out of people getting, uh, getting the game for the first time. If you look mm. at the comments, you know, there's a number of fans of the game who want another great campaign for it but of course it did come uh, one of the things it was sort of funding is a revised second printing the reprint and, yeah absolutely uh, and that was going to be getting um quite a few people on board i saw weren't a few were actually replacing their their original print with their with the updated version but there's a lot who are buying it for the first time and mm. they're in for a world of fun. Well, and they were saying that this this Kickstarter has more backers than the original Kickstarter for Forbidden Lands, which is pretty unusual for a sequel expansion to beat the original game, which again I think just shows yeah. how well Forbidden Lands is is uh, is growing. But yeah, I'm looking Brilliant. at the I'm looking at the uh, stretch goals now. So you've got um where are we? So we've got bonus adventure site Field of Blades Bonus adventure site, Hope's Last Rest, which um, uh, apparently yes. I, I mentioned that to, to Thomas when uh, I was uh, invited onto Victory Condition Gaming by Doug and we interviewed him. Uh, I thought just And what did he say? Did they um, take the cable? Did they take the idea from us? Um, no, well, the idea came, it was Magnus's name for, for the site, but Magnus wanted Hope's Last Sanctuary. And um, so. It's an in-joke to Alien, but I think it was kind of an accidental in-joke to Alien, <laughs> rather than a deliberate one. Um, right. And then there's there's another bonus adventure site, um, Worm's Fist. New, at least two new magic disciplines, Elemental and Druidic. Um, and then you've got some you know some some big writers in uh, the fantasy field coming into to to work on some of this stuff. So you've got an adventure site. Yeah, I see Fiona. that one of the guys. Was the guy that wrote Dungeon World? Dave McGrogan, all right. Uh, I right think one? so. Yes. Um, and then there's uh, some names that I'm not familiar with. ZX Sue, I don't know that name, but he's writing an adventure site. Yeah, great. I mean, what's not to like? I guess there's a. It's quite a challenge now for Free League to fulfil all of this. Um, but they're good at doing that, actually. So, well, uh, actually, I think one of the things we always admire about Free League is they don't overpromise on the Kickstarter with the stretch goals and well, the, not you know, not anymore, anyway. Yes, <laughs> there's still no Swedish Coriolis cookbook, is there? Uh, no, and I think not likely to be very soon. <laughs> um, Costa did did mention the cookbook when uh, 
uh, when I was over there in uh, Stockholm a few weeks ago, uh, more of a cook pamphlet now than a cook <laughs> cookbook. But uh, they they were committed and determined to fulfil it eventually. But yeah, they learnt quite a lot from some of the early Kickstarters, I think. Yes, yes. <laughs> so now they do stuff that they can deliver, which is great for us. Yep. Just talking about Kickstarter generally and Sweden generally as well, I saw an interesting thing which I didn't back, and not because of any boycott or anything like that. I didn't back because I'm not Swedish, <laughs> and this was a Swedish language version of Call of Cthulhu mm. uh, by a company that I've just forgotten. So is this just going to be a translation then of? I think I think it's a translation. I think there may well be you know a Swedish specific scenario in it oh, now okay. it caught my attention for a couple of reasons and which edition as well one sorry which edition of cthulhu is it going to be oh i think it's of seventh edition right right cool um but uh, uh one of the things i liked about it is they did recognize that they could well be anglophone uh collectors of call of cthulhu stuff who would want the swedish edition even if they never opened the book so there was a particular <laughs> package that was like a collector's version for them i like that but okay. also the thing that really grabbed my attention is they did a lovely video you know you very often have a video at the top of your kickstarter page um yes. talking you know a little bit about it and and quite often that is a what's called a ken burns effect slow pan over some of the illustrations yeah. that have already been made for the game this was a live action video a bunch of swedish characters all in sort of uh early 20th century costume <laughs> going on their ships uh, across to islands and stuff like that. And uh, it was really, um, it, it really wanted to get me adventuring in the world of the uh, 1920s, in fact. So that's worth Yeah, I was just going to say, that would be really interesting in a Swedish context. Obviously, um, having a Swedish wife and you know, extended Swedish family you get a real sense of some of the history of, of certainly from Jenny's family, because they, they have a country house, which is out near the coast. Mm. And, I mean, by country house, it's a little house in the country rather than a mansion or anything. Yes. Yeah. Um, and there's no running water. Um, there's a pump out in the garden that gives you the cleanest, freshest water you'll ever drink. There's no electric. Uh, it's, you, know, you have to, you know, light fires and do everything for yourselves. And that gives you a real sense of... Um, how the Swedes would have lived, um, you know, not that long ago actually, because Jenny's grandparents lived in that house until until um, sort of the late eighties, even a bit later. Um, so I, yeah, I would need to learn Swedish in order to then play that game in the Swedish context. But maybe if it's a really good setting and scenario, they ought to reconsider doing the scenario and setting stuff, but back in an English translation. Yeah, well, I guess they might do. So it's the company name is Eloso, Eloso Forlag, or yeah. forgive my terrible Swedish pronunciation. Does it have? Um, does 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 the L of lag have anything above it? Um, no, yeah, the, the, the A. O has an umlaut above it. Or so, whatever. so that's er, uh, so it's lurg. You pronounce Fur, it Furlag. Lurg. That that O what? that O becomes a er sound. F O R L A G. Fur, and has the A got L A G? Has has the has the A got anything above it? No, it hasn't. No, that's just sounds like A. So that'd be furlag. Furlag. Yep. Eloso furlag. Yep. 
Um, and here, and ends, they... here ends the Swedish lesson for today. <laughs> <laughs> now, they didn't do quite as well as, um, as uh, Free League did with Forbidden Lands. Hmm. Just 520 backers. Um, <laughs> Just. Almost a million Swedish uh. krona raised, however. And yeah. they got through... Uh, quite a few stretch goals, but uh, there were plenty more that they didn't get uh, right. as well. So, but that, uh, as I say, uh, uh, Swedish listeners, check that out. It looks lovely, and uh, everybody else, just check out the video at the top of the uh, page. It's uh, it's a wonder to watch. Mm. I'm always a little bit disappointed when I uh, go onto a Kickstarter video or something like that, and it is just that panning across images thing, because. When I first started looking at Kickstarter a few years ago, I was, uh, I think I was spoiled by things like the video for Mutant Year Zero, for example, which if you mm. haven't seen it, find it. It'll be online, it'll be on YouTube somewhere. It's really good. It's only a couple of minutes long, 90 seconds maybe, but it sums up that game in, in that video absolutely brilliantly. So I'm always a bit disappointed when it's just a fancy picture with a camera panning across it. Yes, yeah, but we'll. Um, uh, uh, this this is one to watch, as is as is that. And there's something else that I've seen, which is a little bit animated uh, and a great video. It's not yet on a crowdfunding site of any sort, but I hope it will be soon. And that is a new game coming out of Helmgast, the Swedish company who I think are behind Cult. Am I right? I think so. I think you are, yeah. And this is a again a game that's going to be published first by them in English. Cool. And it's based on a Belgian uh comic called um Troubleshooters. Hmm. And uh for me, I'm immediately won over because the front cover if the if the art stays the same for the for the final edition, the front cover shows our heroes, the troubleshooters, driving a bright red two CV. Uh, <laughs> if you will remember, I owned one of those for about thirteen years. You did uh, down the street. It's a bit of a sort of Tintin feel, and okay. the troubleshooters game is kind of, for want of uh, a general reference, that everybody's going to get to know a kind of uh, team Tintin type adventure by the look of it. I'm definitely picking it up. Um, is, is, and... it, is it intended to be that kind of look and feel then? It's, it's supposed to be yes. recreating a Tintin book. Rather well, than I think, I think there harder. is this book in Sweden that is kind of like a slight, slightly more modern day uh, Tintin-ish. Not quite the clean art style of, yeah. um, uh, of those original Tintin books, but very much a Euro band dessiné uh, style illustration slightly influenced i feel by modern uh, japanese manga as well so a slight crossover yeah. between the two in terms okay. of art style but lots of you know helicopters and rescues and um, men in mysterious coats uh mm -hmm. and sort of spying <laughs> men it looks like a on. laugh men in mysterious coats yeah mysterious. so not, not mysterious men in coats Men in mysterious, mysterious men in coats, maybe, <laughs> maybe. The men, the men, men the men look coats. really great. They look really normal and nice, but the coats, they are fucking mysterious. Yes. <laughs> anyway, guys, that's not on a Kickstarter yet, but do check out the video. Google 
troubleshooters RPG Helmcast, and you'll probably find it. Yeah, it's well so, worth a, a watch. If it's and not I'm very excited for that. If it's not up on a site yet, where can where can you get it now? Or are we waiting for it to be crowdfunded somewhere? You can't get it. Uh, they're going to be crowdfunding it right. shortly. I guess they might be thinking about what site they're crowdfunding it. Yeah, possibly. On. Okay. Um, cool. Next, next we've got to talk about um, Dragon Meat. Dragon Meat. Yeah, uh, a couple of months away yet still, um, and we will definitely be there. In what capacity will definitely be there is yet to be entirely uh, sorted out. We are very likely, very hopefully, going to be there as representing Free League um, in the last stages of negotiating access to booths and all the rest of it. But if that all comes off, then Matthew and I will be there uh, as uh, as Free League, which would be fabulous. Um, we will obviously be there and doing whatever we can to support the podcast zone as well. Um, clearly, we want to be there as Effect as well as Free League. And yes. we are hoping... Um, we are we're still working on on some of the details, but we're very much hoping to uh, coordinate and run or help other GMs run um, Hope's Last Day from the Alien RPG, which will be coming out to retail um, oof, ten days. I think the ten days Afterwards. after Dragon Meat. So I think tenth of December is the retail release date for for the Alien RPG. Um, all of the backers, all of the pre-order backers, um, will have it by then. Is uh, is the plan? Um, and it's you know it's a bit unfair to have have it come out on retail if uh, if the pre-order backers haven't got it. So that's what Free League are working on. But uh, it would be great to use Dragon Meat as an opportunity to um, showcase the game again, allow the UK uh, gaming community to get their hands on uh, Hope's Last Day, uh, as the American community did at Gen Con. Um, yeah, so fingers crossed. Yeah. We'll confirm in due course once what's actually happening. But that should be uh, should be fabulous. Yeah, really looking forward to that. Yeah, and uh, so we're in contact with Dragon Meat about whether, you know, we can um, squeeze extra volunteer GMs onto tables to, yep. to run sessions of that game. If you are interested as a listener in running... Well, Alien or indeed any free league game, do give us a shout and um, we'll try and coordinate our efforts so that uh, we s- spread spread sessions out over the day and um, and and make a big bash about it. And I would it be fair to say that we might have, even though it's not going to be for sale, we might be able to get hold of a couple of preview copies for people to look at if we're um, running it on the stand. Well, it's possible. Um, we, we, we don't know for sure yet because obviously it's down to um, what Thomas and the guys at Free League are able to organise. But one of the things they're doing at um, PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia the week after, uh, the weekend after Dragon Meat, is they are offering to um, pre-order backers to pick up their copy of the game at the convention. Now, we've, we're talking to them about whether we might be able to do that in the UK as well for Dragon Meat, for... For those who pre-ordered, um, could then come along to Dragon Meet and collect their copy of the game. But where there's many a slip, it should twixt, be really cool. It would be really cool. There's many a slip twixt cup and a lip. We haven't organised what that will mean, and we're not even sure that the free league guys can fulfil that at that point. Anyway, yeah. so um, it's just a, a it's a thought out there that we're working on. 
but um, we aren't able to confirm anything yet. But we will as soon as we're able to um, get the get the news out there about about whether that's possible or not. But we certainly should be able to have a advanced copy for people to come and have a look at, even though we probably won't. Well, we certainly won't be able to sell it. That's for sure. Yeah, well, that that would be great. I'm sure that'll. Uh, I, this is going to be a really popular game, you know. Yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be really popular, so I think lots of people will be really interested. Yes. Um, and, and it's wherever such... we are, if we've got a copy that we can show people, I think we'll get a lot of interest. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, it's such a good opportunity. Dragon Meat is timed perfectly for the UK market um, for for the release date of of Alien. Oh, and isn't it? Yeah. It, so it. It's daft, really, for not not to take the opportunity. And you know, whatever capacity we're there, even if we are, uh, we are there only as uh, podcast zone members. Um, then I'll certainly be doing whatever I can to promote the game because it's great. And yes, I, I do have a very heavy vested interest as well. Now, I did have an idea, Dave, which you which we haven't discussed before, so this is the first time you're hearing it. But okay. I did have a crazy idea that I want to run past you now. If we're if what? we're doing podcasts, on, if on we don't have any commitments to, uh, sorry, you're you're running it past me on the air. So if I, hate I'm it. running it past you on the air because that's how I like to do this stuff. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I'm preparing my dirty laundry. Go on then. Obviously, uh, one of the things we're quite keen on doing is for people to play Hope's Last Day, which is a scenario that's in the core book that we wrote, and you know that's lovely. Um, and that's a two-hour session, so it, you know, it, it, it was designed uh, to cover a two-hour session, so it's perfect for for uh, convention play. Well, actually, before you move on, I would just like to add something there. It, it's been touted as a two-hour session game. Um, in writing it, there was a lot that was taken out uh, in order to bring it down to the to the word count for the book. To the word count. Um, it could easily run for longer than two hours without a problem. Uh, there's loads to do. Um, if you follow the main story, then you can do it in two hours. But it's actually a bit of a push. A lot of the GMs, I think, at Gen Con found that um, completing the scenario in two hours was possible. But if the players go off on a bit of a tangent, then um, there's there's lots more adventure at Hadley's Hope than just that main story. Yes, we got lots of side quests, haven't we, in there yeah. as well. And so, yeah, let's say it's uh, because we designed it to be uh, played by professional GMs such as you and I in two hours, uh, it can be played easily in four hours. Yes. Even if you don't whip your players along the railroad tracks uh, to get them to get them to the end point in two. So it's a lovely four-hour game, as you were saying, but I've got a crazy idea, and the crazy idea is this. <laughs> Last year, we did the Grindbone Challenge. We did. Where people got a randomly generated character and they fought each other to the death. Now, what about... Some prison space station somewhere in the alien future where a bunch of random players get randomized, pre-generated. I think we won't make them roll up their characters like we did last time. Yeah. Pre-generated characters. And then the prison governor puts an alien in there to see what happens next. Grindbone in space. <laughs> um, How about it, Dave? Well, I'm not opposed to that. I think that's quite a good idea. Would we be thinking of doing that, um, recording it in the way we did Grindbone last time, do you think? Well, yeah, I, uh, this is one of the many variables that's going. So yeah. I'm thinking if we get a decent enough slot, well, A, if we don't have to uh, 
um, represent Free League and we can devote the time to it on the podcast zone. And if the podcast zone can give us a decent enough, long enough slot to run that, then yeah, let's do that and let's record it like last time. Yeah. And then let's share the fun with everybody. Um. Yeah. I know. I like that idea. I like it. Uh, just my my um, sort of practical brain is just beginning to run through some of the some of the logistics. But yes, I I think I think that could work really well. Um. If if we make sure that the players coming into it realise that their game might be ninety seconds Very long, or, or it might be <laughs> ninety minutes long. Um, yeah. Cool. Let's work. Let's work on that. Yeah, and let's have a bit of a think about that then. Okay, that was my crazy can, idea. Let's see if we can get that slot at. Uh... Now we've uh, we've filled a considerable amount of time. I thought this was going to be quite a short uh, ah. world of gaming, but there you go. We do like talking. Shall we move on to your uh, your piece about Coriolis? Yes. Um, last week, last week, last time, um, I I slightly. And decried the fact that we hadn't really talked about Coriolis as much as uh, uh, as we might have done with, I mean, so much other stuff to talk about. Um, so I was really keen to do something about Coriolis, and I had a little think about sport, and uh, I came up with uh, with some of these thoughts. Life in the third horizon can be tough. What with working to eke out a living, the constant demands of paying one's respect to the icons, and the creeping dark between the stars, the remaining time is precious. The timeless recreations of games, competitions and sports are used as with any culture. Old men and women gather in the open to while away a warm afternoon playing at the tavli and shah boards, whilst the theatres and hammams are often full. But I'm not talking about games and entertainments here, I'm talking about sport. But first, a brief history lesson. The Portal Wars were devastating but the long night that followed the end of those wars with the destruction of the Odicon portals was almost worse. Economic collapse led to the Third Horizon's religious authorities enforcing their control with ruthless efficiency, falling back on the icons to hold their societies together. At this time, any organised sports were turned into religious ceremonies and became more ritualistic than sporting. And the breaking of the links between systems meant that any cross-horizon sporting traditions ceased to exist. Things started to change with the arrival of the Zenith, but now, 60 years on, cross-horizon sports are still a rarity. Only two traditional sports have re-emerged, with teams travelling to compete in organised competitions. The first is Al Pacada, a contact team sport played between two teams of seven. The objective is for a single player on offence, referred to as a raider, to attack the opposing team's half of the court, tag out as many defenders as possible before escaping back to their half, all without being tackled and in a single breath. Players are removed if tagged or if tackled while tagging, and the team that eliminates the opposition first wins. Al Picada is growing across the horizon, but is especially popular along the Algol route. The second is Sorika Satinia, a non-contact sport with up to nine competitors all playing for themselves. The sport is played in a pentagonal arena, usually set 30 feet deep into the floor, allowing the crowds to peer in from the top. The long wall opposite the apex of the pentagon is called the face, and this is the focus of the game. 
Below the face is the pit, a four foot deep and five foot wide trench that stretches along the, the length of the face. Play commences when one player throws an electrically charged ball, called the nab, against the wall. All players compete to catch it. If it's caught cleanly, without bouncing, the catching player may throw it at any other player. If it's caught after one bounce, the catching player can only throw it at an opponent between them and the face. If the target is hit, and withstands the charge that the ball delivers to them, they are relegated to the pit. A player that takes a second hit, whilst they're in the pit, is eliminated. However, if a player in the pit catches or recovers the nab once it's in the pit, they may throw it at an outfield player. Should that throw hit, the players swap places. Once the nab is dead, has bounced twice or more, play is restarted by throwing it once again against the face. The winner is the last player standing before the face. Sorica Satinia originated in the torture pits of ancient Zalos and was widely played before the Long Night. It is regaining its popularity with an annual competition held in the Burge Arena in the Monolith that draws hundreds of competitors and many thousands of spectators. But there are many other sports and events that are more localised, although as people travel, word of these events is spreading. The camel racing studs on Lubau breed and race the most prestigious beasts, with the winning beast sacrificed and prepared for a lavish celebratory feast at the end of the festival. Cloud City on Debaron is known for hover and gravcraft racing, deadly dangerous to both the pilots and drivers and their spectators that charter hover vehicles to line the route of the race through the clouds. The racers need to remain within the pipe, the narrow channel marked by beacon buoys and flashing lights. If they stray outside of these, or more usually are buffeted or bumped by their opponents outside of these, not only are they eliminated, but they will in all likelihood crash into spectators in what will nearly always be a fatal end to the race. On many worlds, the traditional arts of gladiatorial combat, bullfighting and falconry are kept alive in local events. But there are two other events known across the horizon, both spoken of in hushed tones, but for different reasons. Every year, the slavers on Algol offer freedom to the best slave they have gathered. The top ten slaves are offered the chance to enter the Great Slave Run. The last to be killed or recaptured is given freedom, wealth and a new life of luxury. The rest are returned to the souks for sale, at an inflated price. The slavers' thinking behind this follows these lines. Their slaves are unlikely to try their hardest and earn a good price unless there is an incentive to try. The Great Slave Run is seen as that incentive. The competitors are released in the Tanzim Highlands with a 12-hour head start, and the last slave standing wins. This so-called sport is not openly acknowledged, and spectators are allowed on an invite-only basis. There are some notable celebrities living across the horizon, claiming to be winners of the Great Slave Run, namely... Barada Quentel, Ishmael Garka, and the self-styled Shah of Yastapol, Radia Rahman. And finally, there is the annual Nikatra hunt, organised and controlled by the Legion. In fact, there are three. One on Kua, one on Menkar, and one on the forest moon Uharu. These draw hunters from across the horizon who are confident 
or stupid enough to track and hunt wild Nakatra in their own environment. New entrants apply to hunt on Kua, where the land is better understood and the prey not so deadly as elsewhere. The winner of the Kua hunt is promoted to the Menkar hunt for the following year, and the winner of the Menkar hunt is promoted to the Uharu hunt in similar fashion. The Nakatra on Uharu are the most cunning, the most powerful and most intelligent. On all three hunts, the hunters are only allowed melee weapons, and explosives are expressly forbidden. The hunt is deadly for Nakatra and hunters both, and the outcome for entrance is often a swift and bloody death. The hunt is seen as a martial right of honour, and not a trophy hunt. Those hunters coming for glory and blood are rooted out and not allowed to compete. Well, I love that. That's uh, a great range of sports there. Mm, uh, and of course, cool. I think it really is important that you drive home that thing about the period after the Portal Wars being an opportunity for diversification, for sports to be happening on different planets um, mm. and not necessarily being some global third horizon um, <laughs> Premier American League, League or something. Yeah. 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 Now, I'd, I'd been thinking about doing something similar uh some time ago but i'm not enough of a sports fan really to to do it and i had an idea about um ostrich racing like like your camel racing but on some sort of giant alien ostrich that (sighs) i think i've been thinking about some sort of arena doing it as a kind of adventure site or something on the that's a good idea like but we can easily fit that in can't we sort of like a chariot um a chariot race arena kind of thing That'd be quite yeah, cool. yeah, but with with uh, just these enormous, gigantic, two legged birds, yeah, and there might be some combat stuff on it as well. Um, anyway, that's 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 a, cool. That, that's something for another session. I'm sure. I like that idea. Yeah, uh, the, the idea, the idea of sort of jousting on on emus. <laughs> yes, exactly. But cool. going round in a big circle as well, so it's yeah. cross between jousting and um, oh, what was that game? The the the. The rollerball. Do you remember that? Yes. I love oh, that yeah, yeah. I love yeah. that film. The well, first I, one. I did think about rollerball as a, a kind of example for coming in here, but then I thought that's just a bit obvious. So yeah. uh, we could always have that at another time. It didn't feel very. I'm sure that's being played on some planet somewhere. Um, but yeah, uh, there's I'm a couple. Sure. Um, there's a couple of games that I just want to know a bit more about. So Al Pacada. Yes. Well, I I have to hold my hands up here. I I've completely and utterly. Um, some some listeners might know where I'm going already. Completely and utterly ripped this off from a a game that's played in um, this Indian subcontinent and elsewhere in Asia called Kabaddi, and it's oh, right. uh, it's a uh, they used to have it on Channel Four here on television years ago, which is why I first mm. first came across it. And the 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 name Kabaddi I think comes from the fact that when when their team is attacking and the raider is going into the opposition's half to try and tag their player. Um, they're not allowed to breathe. They've got to hold their breath. And to, oh. to prove that they're holding their breath, they go, kabaddi, 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 kabaddi. Um, They've got to keep saying that as yeah. they're in there. So to, yeah. prove, to prove that they're not drawing a breath, because obviously then you know it limits the amount of time you've got to try and tag them. And that's a great game. And you don't see it on television here in the UK anymore, sadly. Um, but yeah, so, so um, Al Picada is based completely 100% on, um, on kabaddi. Oh, excellent. So I, I imagine that uh, Sorika Satinir is also based on some game with a long heritage and possibly having been on telly as well. Um, well, for for those people whose um, 
Arabic is at least as good as the translator on Google. Um, Sorika Satinia uh, is, as far as I can tell, a loose translation of the word stingers. Oh. <laughs> now, back in school, we had a game called Stingers, <laughs> which uh, we used to play in lunch hour and stuff, which was basically Sorika Satinia, but without an electrically charged ball. And it yes, was, it was an object. It was an opportunity to to throw balls very hard at your friends and hurt them. And uh, yeah, um, for um, for for our American listeners, its closest American relative is dodgeball. Uh, would you say? Yes, I think so. I think but, uh, yeah. But we Brits didn't use um, basketballs like I think they do in dodgeball. We used tennis balls. Tennis balls, or some very stupid people use golf balls. Which is quite, quite dangerous. I didn't because I wasn't that brave or stupid. Um, <laughs> no. But yeah, so that's where that idea came from. That was a great game back in the day. And he, <laughs> it could be quite vindictive because if, if somebody was in yes. the pit um, and you just felt like throwing the ball at them, if you caught it cleanly so you could throw it anywhere, you could still bounce yeah. it. You could still bounce it once. So you'd bounce it once, but you'd bounce it so it ended up right next to the pit where you'd catch it again. And then the guy you want to throw the ball at is right in front of you. It's really quite harsh. <laughs> uh, but yes, so great for great fun. But that's where that came from. Yeah, an old blast from the past from from school. Excellent. Uh, cool. Anything else in there? It was quite fun. Oh, I li- well, I liked it all. I, I thought what was interesting, and I hadn't this. We hadn't particularly planned this, but you talk a bit about things like bullfighting, and we're yes. going to see. Something a bit like that happening ah. when I start talking about Brightwater a bit later on. Which okay, is cool. why we ended up having uh, Let's Get Ready to Rumble as the title for this, um, <laughs> for this episode. Even though there um, isn't any wrestling in this, really. I mean, that's, that's kind of in, where that comes although from. Although there's no wrestling but at it's, all. But, it's, but we but, can assume that's going on in, in, in the in, Third Horizon. <laughs> yeah, in, in <laughs> hammams and uh, bedrooms all over the place. Uh, not that sort of wrestling. Not naked <laughs> wrestling. No, 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 no. Anyway, anyway let's move on, shall we? Yeah, let's do that. Yes. And for um, a time, let's take a break away from sport and talk about <laughs> our um, friend and patron. Uh, uh, yeah, who, who also is about as far from sport as you can get. <laughs> not the sportiest type, our friend Andy. Um, but yeah, I had the uh, the pleasure of chatting to him earlier today in a nice little hammam not far from uh, from where where we live um yeah let's have a listen to the interview here we are in the hammam uh in october and i've got a very special guest in the hammam with me today it's my dog diggy so hello diggy say hello um i also have another guest which is uh my old friend andy who's uh, been playing quite a lot for simbarum lately and yeah, has got a long track record in in gaming. So um, we like to kick off with all of these interviews, Andy, by getting you to briefly, if you don't mind, give us a quick rundown of your history in gaming and, and oh, how God. you got to where you are. That's why I said briefly, because <laughs> we've, we've only got another 19 minutes. <laughs> four de- yeah, four decades and 19 minutes isn't going to work. Um, okay, started gaming in 1980-81, around there. First game was Traveller. Played a lot of D&D, then Traveller, then other things. Um, suffered you as a player for many years. Uh-huh. Suffered Matt as a player for just as many years, probably. <laughs> uh, what else can I say about myself? I played pretty much 
everything I can think of, and I've run an awful lot of games. There you go. <laughs> Jack of all trades and master of some. There you are. You certainly have a have a have a reputation, uh, well founded reputation of running a good game. Well, I am uh, the best GM after all. That's getting edited out. I'm, I'm <laughs> sick to death of this whole best GM malarkey. <laughs> it's just childish now. You, you just know that I am. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> anyway, I'd like to talk to you a bit about Simbroom. So, Simbroom, okay. uh, a Yen Ringen game originally. Uh, Yen Ringen and Free League are now obviously uh, merged as of last year. And so, Simbroom is now being developed as part of Free League. Mm-hmm. So, um, tell me, but what drew you to Simbroom in the first place? The art. It was an incredibly pretty book. Um, That's exactly how what drew it to me. me yeah, to it, it, was, well. it was stunningly, stunningly published as well. It was very well presented and laid out. The artwork was top-notch, incredible. Very much sort of gloomy and dark, I found. But mm. yeah, the art, first of all. And then from there on in, it was a question of reading the background and, and finding that I actually quite liked it, which is rare for me, because mostly when a game comes out and it has a background established with it, I don't tend to like the backgrounds that come uh, with it. Okay. I prefer the game. Uh, but with Simbarum, it's yeah, it's a very good background. It makes a lot of sense to me somehow internally. <laughs> cool. Did you um, ever get a chance to listen to the interviews that Matt and I did of um, Matthias Lilja and uh, Martin Grip, uh, the designer and art, uh, artist? I have to be honest, I only listened to some of them. And I don't know if I listened it to them. It was quite long. That was over two years ago, those, those, yeah, those podcasts. To be fair... I haven't listened to every single podcast you've ever done. <laughs> Why not? Okay, cut this. All right, we're done. We're done. Finished. It's a, well, pre- it's a you basic know, prerequisite of being interviewed is you have to have listened to everything. Well, the payment done. stopped, you see. So <laughs> I, I just didn't stop listening to them. No, um, I, yeah, I haven't listened to everything. I have listened to a couple of the interviews. Um, I think I did listen to the Martin Grip one. Mm. Um, so um, what is it about the, the background there that draws you to Super Room? I like dark backgrounds. Um, and I cannot lie. No, I like dark backgrounds, especially the the sort of it's all going to hell in a handcart type mm. background. Um, I don't like backgrounds where it's you know the triumph of the good guys over the bad guys and everything's nice and pleasant and fluffy. Fluffy. Yeah. Um, I prefer backgrounds which are more human in that there's no clear cut good or evil. There's just a slow decline, as it yeah. were. Which is why I like. I mean, it's the same thing with cyberpunk and things like that. It's the same dystopian view. Um, which, what that says about me as a person, I have no idea. But yeah, I like dark backgrounds, and it just appealed to me. The art was dark, and then the background yeah. was dark, and I thought, okay, you know, we'll go with that. Yeah, cool. I mean, I I remember talking to Martin about the art and how much I liked the uh, uh, sort of the vagueness of the backgrounds, and um, he he very very honestly said, "Well, I, I do it like that because it saves me having to write all the detail in the background. It's much quicker." Well, that's what every GM Which is does. But it's great. You only write um, the bits you need. You don't write anything is, else. It's <laughs> really good. So, apart from the setting, what um, um what what do you you know what would you what are your comments around uh, the, the the game mechanics? Well. I've got two problems. Have you, have you homebrewed it much? Oh, I guess. of course I have. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I homebrew everything. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of us do, don't we? Well, the thing is that I see a game as, as a toolkit, and I can build what I want with that toolkit. And if I don't like something in the toolkit, I won't use it. And it's as simple as that. And with the with Simbaran, the thing that struck me most was the fact that the players roll their own defence rolls, which 
I think, belittles the GM in a way. Because it means the GM is, A, not rolling as many dice as they normally do, which is... Or shouldn't be rolling any dice, actually, well, in a player yeah. facing game like Zimbaroon. Yeah, yeah if, you, if, you, if you take it to its logical extent, then yes, yeah. they don't roll anything. Which I, I never really like that very much, because well, as a GM, I quite just, like rolling dice as well. Yeah, well, yeah. the GM is a player, as someone we know says. <laughs> um, but, no, the thing is that Maybe. it means that the GM becomes just a narrative yeah. device, which is fine. But it also means that if you want to fudge something for dramatic effect... I mean, take this, the situation where you have a character who's on their last legs and about to, to pop their clogs, as it were, and then you end up with, um, in a scenario, a situation rather where they're literally going to die, but you want them to live to the next bit because that's kind of important for your narrative or whatever. Yeah. You can't fudge that. No. They roll a defense roll, they fail, they're dead. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's good to give a player a second chance without them necessarily knowing you have. Yeah. Mm. Yep, yeah. Um, it's an interesting question, sort of broader question about. GM's so, fudging it. Well, I don't there think, are because there are schools. Let me let me just expand on that. I don't think you should fudge all the time, no. right? And I don't, contrary to popular opinion. Um, but at the same time, you should be able to have that option if you need it. Yeah, maybe. Right? maybe. And use sparingly. I think it's a good thing to have. On the other side of the coin, yeah, you shouldn't bend the rules all the way. You know, I mean, just because you're GM and you are the voice of God or whatever doesn't mean that you should fudge every single rule in the book. Yeah. Right? But You might as well just tell the players what happens then, might Yeah, you? exactly. It's just, just like reading story. a novel. But if you can, occasionally, just nudge the narrative a bit, then sometimes that's helpful. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. Um, I have got, in recent years, I've, I've really got to quite like the letting the dice tell you everything. And yeah, then, well, that's and then the coping, land thing, And then it? coping with it. Um which is which is fine. I, I, was, I do like that. It, it does run the risk of killing off a character. Do you remember in Traveller there was the concept of the uncertain task where both you and the games master would roll, so the player would roll and the referee would roll. Yeah. And if they were both successful, it worked. But if the player failed, obviously it failed. But if the referee rolled a, a, a failure and the player rolled a success, they got a partial or obfuscated result. Yeah. And I always liked that because it meant you were never entirely sure if what you were doing was right. Yeah. Right. And that sort of thing is missing from Zimbara Mentali, which is fine, but... I guess it's missing from quite a lot of games, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you, you well, don't... yeah, but it, it had its advantages in that I could give you a partial result and you would gamble on whether you believe that to be a, a, a partial or full result. And that was actually quite cool because you could be misled entirely, yeah. but still think you'd succeeded. Yes. You know, so... Things like that are, are missing, I think, from right. a lot of games. But yeah. And you can't do that with Symbaran, especially if you play it canonically, because the dice are always on the table, everything's yep. transparent. It's the perfect transparent game. Like there, that, is, there is no escaping, yeah. yeah. But there are other things as well. I mean, it's not just about dice rolling. I mean, I extend games more than homebrew them. So I've used right. the, the hit location tables in Symbaran, I think, are simplistic, so I extended those. Um, because sometimes it's nice to tell someone, you know, instead of you've got a bad wound, yeah, you are wounded in the leg or whatever. Yeah. Although, I have a RuneQuest hit location die, which I now use for Symbarum and other games as well, and it always comes up left leg. <laughs> so I have an awful lot of limping characters. Sort of <laughs> so, yeah. But no, I mean, hit locations in general I like, some more uh, complexity to combat I like, just to add a little bit of and the flavour to it. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say realism because I don't think any role-playing game is realistic with combat. Um, 
because if they were, the combat would be over in two seconds and you'd be moving on, you know. Yeah. Um, Phoenix Command once tried to do that, and you would then spend three hours calculating one shot. Yeah, and there are about four Which or five Which is kind of not the point of a role-playing game. Yeah, there are like four or five systems for Traveller. On target is probably the best one, and that goes down to how long your bones take to heal, right? <laughs> Which is six weeks in hospital for this or whatever. Yeah. Which is great if you want to role-play the six weeks in hospital and you've got some sort of narrative for it. Or, just hand, or just hand-wave it for the hell of it. Yeah, right. Which means for that six weeks you can't talk about anything yeah, you can't exactly. plot anything and, you can't um, what's, what's the point of that you yeah. know it, realism is fine but you have to remember your characters are heroes and therefore we should hand wave a little bit because they're meant to be larger than life or, yeah. or whatever you know so yeah I, I think it comes down to um, how much realism you want but a little yeah. detail doesn't hurt no. yeah. do, you, do you use many of the optional rules that they've put in because that's one of the things I really liked about it you get the basics and then there's some optional ones you can use if you like. And then the advanced well, player guide, I think, gave you some more. Like I mean, I, I haven't said, used many of them, other than, I think, making it a bit more deadly. But uh, Yeah, I mean, like I said, I see a game as a toolkit. So, to me, all rules are optional to some extent. Yeah. Um, having said that, yeah, I do use the optional rule on hit locations, obviously. Yep. I think there's another optional rule on... Um, with the same with the hit locations about, you know... Um, Commanded combat or something? I can't remember now. Yeah, okay. Right? Um, and stuff like that. And I obviously use rules from um, the Advanced Players Guide or whatever, the, yeah. you know, things like that. So, yeah, in general, I probably do. Although it's hard to think of an example other than hit locations right this second. <laughs> but, enough, yeah. yeah, I think I do mostly. Um, I do like the way Simbaran does this, and it's also um, true of a few other games where the damage is done by weapon type rather than weapon. So they group together like long swords or yeah. whatever and they all do a d8 or d10 or whatever it is which I prefer because in my mind the, it's like you know in, in other games where you get hit by the bullet the bullet does the damage not the gun yeah right the gun may change the speed of the bullet or something slightly but overall it's the bullet that but does the damage but if it's a big bullet it's going to yeah. do a lot of damage so if it's, yeah. if it's a 7.62 or whatever the damage should be pretty much the same no matter what sort of gun it is that's, yeah? yeah that's so not unreasonable. So why have different damages for every single type of no? Mm. It just have one simple damage for that caliber bullet, and then it's easy to remember and work with. And it's the yeah. same as in Baron, right? All this type of weapon does that, or that type of weapon does something else. You know. Yeah. So I like that. I like the, those are the things that appeal to me. So do you randomize damage then in Simbaroon? Always. Oh, that's the other thing. Because because the rules. Gave yeah, you the, set the and, and I, I changed that after the first time I ran it because I, I prefer the randomised damage. I changed that when I read it yeah. on the grounds that why would I give anyone the advantage of knowing exactly how much damage they're going to take from me? How many hits they take yeah. before they're because down. Because then yeah. they start running the calculation, oh, I can survive that one, but I can't survive this one. Yeah. And that <clears throat> instantly takes away from the game. Yeah, um, yeah. And I would never run non-random damage, hmm. unless I mean, unless it's a system which is completely built about run and non-random damage. But again, you see, it isn't. The players are all random, and the NPCs yeah. are fixed, and that's yes, that's yeah. that seems to me an unfair advantage in some ways. It also means that you can't have an NPC do extra damage in you know a situation. They're not going to do no the maximum possible. They're always going to do four or three or two or whatever. Yeah, and, and you'll always be killed in two or three or four hits. Yeah. Whereas you might take six hits or seven hits. Yeah, well, I, I have a problem hits. at the moment. I have a problem with an ogre who's incredibly tough, incredibly tough. Um, he took out a liege troll with the rest of the group mm. over the weekend, and that shouldn't be as possible as it was. <laughs> and I realised that if I had run fixed damage for that, 
um, he would have killed it a lot quicker. It yeah. Was, it was only because it, it was doing such heavy hits on him that it took a long, uh, you know, it took it down so quickly. Well, yeah. both ways. Right? Yeah. And I think if I'd have run that with fixed damage, it just wouldn't have worked. Yeah. You know, it would become almost farcical in the way it was. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm slamming some barum here for these things, but those things stick out as problems to me. Yeah. The rest of the game, I actually quite like the way the characteristics and the skills and so on work. I like the novice adept master thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I prefer that to having individual skill levels in a way. I like the simplicity of yeah of of, of doing doing tasks that you then just choose the right attribute and you roll on that rather than having well that's always been a, the argument, a very isn't it? lengthy list of How skills that are related to your attribute but slightly different. Well, there's always, been the, there's always been the argument between how far an attribute affects a skill and how far a skill level affects a skill. Yeah. And every game has a different solution to that. Yeah. Um, and you go all the way from the attribute games, you know, games like Simvarum through to the sort of modifier games like Traveller through to the, oh, have a different skill level like Cthulhu. Yeah. And it depends what you prefer, really. I, I don't think it matters if it's all on one character sheet in front of you. No, maybe. But I, I did think it was very... I, the simplicity of it made it easier as a GM, I found, to... It does make it easier. Yeah, it keeps the pace going, I think. Well, then you get into the, the hassle of getting slightly confused with, okay, normally it's accuracy, but this guy's a hunter, so he gets vigilance, and da 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 Or uh, yes, and uses cunning, or, and those yeah. sort of things can get confusing. But yeah. um, as long as you have a handle on that. But then I find the, the best thing I bought for Simbarum, I think, actually, were the um, little reference cards for the abilities and whatever. Okay. Because um, I, I, have I that, don't have those. Yeah. I have those in a flip book, and it makes life... 30 times easier. Mm -hmm. You just find what you want and go through it and yeah. press it. Um, and that's probably the most reference book on the table because yeah. it just sits cool. in the middle of the table there, everyone, and we go through it and that's that. But yeah. Cool. I mean, did you kick in for things like the Monster Codex and the campaign books? I missed the Monster Codex. It's a good book, that one. I, I really got like it. it. Yeah. But yeah. I... Um, I remember what you said, but you found the first monster in the book and went, I'll go with that one or whatever. Because it was great, yeah. What, was it the Arax? The Arax, or yeah. yeah. Um, Perfect for the kind of scenario I was planning. I find, yeah, I think the Monster Codex is great. Um, I miss most of the basic books though on, on whatever. I got the Darkest Star um, when it was released, not through the Kickstarter. Right. Um, and I'm on the Kickstarter for Mother of Darkness, which, by the way, had its Vita PDF last night, which I had a glance through. Uh, okay. Um, and how does it look? It looks good. It's not quite how I imagined it would be, but it does look good. So is that the last instalment of the... No, it's four out of seven or is something. It? Right, right. Okay. Um, but the problem I have is you always have a, a difference between what you think it will be like and what it actually is. Mm -hmm. And it's reminiscent of certain things to me. Right. Um, one of the things it's reminiscent of is a Shinara book, actually, <laughs> right, which I read years and years ago. And in like most Shinara books, it's instantly forgettable. So uh, don't quote me on what it is, but there was a, a section with like a, a sort of thicket growing over everything, and that's very reminiscent of that Shinara story right. to me. But anyway, um, no, it's overall it's a, it's a very nicely produced book. It's what two three hundred pages of content. I haven't obviously read it in detail because I only got it last night. Yeah. But um, from what I saw of it. And from what I saw of the ending and things, um, yeah, it looks good. Cool. Um, but I won't run it, because I never run, or I try not to run, published scenarios. No, I don't really uh, run published scenarios either. On the grounds that either I end up modifying them to have tangents in them so much they become something else anyway. Yeah. 
all there's always the risk and there is certainly a risk with one guy in my group that they bought it yeah right and therefore there is no shock and surprise value no, no. so no I I will use bits of it I will probably use maps from it I will probably use content from it NPCs whatever I won't actually run it verbatim but you'll draw on it yeah. as a source book rather than yeah a, exactly because yeah. that way I, I maintain some element of surprise yeah you know, and I think that's important too for a GM yeah absolutely I agree there aren't exceptions. I have run some published scenarios, obviously, but Masks of Maya Lethotep, I think it was, and Trailers of Yogg-Sothoth for Cthulhu and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, yeah. Years ago, anyway. But in general, it's when I've been really pressed for time. Yeah. Well, I, I find that I, you know, preparing to run a, 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 a you know, pre-printed scenario yeah. that I don't know already, yeah. um, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't read, I don't read it enough. So I lose track of the detail. No, no one does. And then you realise that one small paragraph on one page actually changed the whole tone of what happened. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or you miss a really yeah. key element. Yeah. That, that that whole scene is wasted because the Because key you didn't run it right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there is that. And to be honest, yeah, I'd rather have something that I created than I know if I miss something. It's because yeah. I forgot, not because I misunderstood it. Yeah, cool. So you've got a... A campaign running. Is it still running now? Is that campaign finished? It was meant to finish on Saturday, um, but because the characters went off on a massive detour to Thistleholm for no apparent reason whatsoever <laughs> that I can work, uh, believe. Um, yeah, so we spent, out of 10 hours gaming, we spent four hours in Thistlehold kicking the dirt, basically. Um, and therefore, this was meant to be the finale. Yeah. And uh, there are still large chunks of the finale that never got run right okay um, so now it's a two part finale <laughs> and I'll be running the last part at the end of October or thereabouts and then, um, then do you have plans beyond that for the next part of the campaign or is that I'm not sure I had plans for this one to be honest <laughs> okay we only sort of really started to evolve around the second or third scenario and then I started to think oh, actually no I have got a direction for this yeah but I had an idea the, the whole concept of this was that I wanted two unrelated antagonists for the players because I'm fed up of every antagonist in a game, book, film, being connected to every other antagonist because, I don't know, Yeah. you know, it, 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 it just doesn't make sense to me, right? No. In life, you have more than one antagonist. I pay the tax man, I also have to pay my rent, or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, you pay the tax man? You know what I mean. Um, <laughs> and I I'll edit that bit out, sorry. Yeah, I, I would. If I would yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure anybody from HMRC listens to this anyway. Well, if they do, I do pay the tax. <laughs> um, but no, the, the thing is that it struck me that to have two unrelated antagonists, A, would cause confusion, which is great, um, but also was just different. You know, yeah. you, you don't have one all-powerful evil villain in their volcano lair or dark lord in their mountain or whatever. <clears throat> you have two unrelated things. So I have a political scenario that's basically around Indaros and the area around there. And I have a more mystical antagonist, which they've now dealt with, who was in Davokar. Okay. And the two of them, unconnected, never met, didn't know, about, know each other. about each other. Yeah, okay. They were nothing to do with each other. It was just so happened the players happened to be in the right place at the right time where their paths sort of crossed. Yeah. But not really. Yeah. yeah. And cool. they fell for it, hook, line and sinker, because huh. they, they believed that these two guys were connected for at least three or four scenarios. Yeah. And they were coming up with all sorts of conspiracy theories to join them together. And they weren't. There was just nothing there. There was there was no connection at all, you know. Yeah, cool. Um, so that was fun. The mm. other thing I wanted to do was I wanted to um, give the players a scenario where they entirely drove the narrative. 
I did that two or three scenarios ago, and I didn't actually set anything for them. And it's not a sort of random generated thing. Yeah. I set up some sequences, if you like, that were going to happen. It was really up to them what they did about it. Yeah. Um, because that's the other thing with a scenario, right? You have a hook, right? Or a patron or something, right? Yeah. And then you have the sort of beginning where you go off and set your plans up, and in the middle where it all falls to hell, and then the conclusion where, you know, you deal with the bad guy and we're done, right? I set up two or three sort of entry points where they could start something, and then I let them roll. Yeah. Know? I've done that before with Traveller, I have to be honest. Yeah. But with Symbarum, it worked so much better. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? Because... Cool. Really, they made their own enemies. Yeah. Um, the biggest one was corruption, actually. Right? Yeah. Um, because my stepson, Brock, he plays a mage, all the magic and mage. And he has immense fun managing his corruption score. Yeah. You know? um, and so on and so forth. So you get the idea. We were trying to do non-regular scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's basically that. But yeah, otherwise the campaign is fairly straightforward. It's not really anything to write home about. It's... Mm. It's a political campaign, so there are factions and whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's a mystical campaign in that there was a, a faction of elves who were doing something, you know. Um, and that's how it went. Cool, cool. So I think uh, I'm right that the um, Mother of Darkness is finished now, isn't it, the Kickstarter? Uh, it's closed. They're in the pledge managers so yeah, and they have beat okay. the PDFs and things like that. Yeah, yeah cool. Um, um, brilliant. Well, thanks very much, Andy. Fabulous talking to you. We'll have to do this again because I get a sense there's probably more we could talk about. You're five um, miles from me. We can do this as many times as you like. I think people get bored though. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so um, I encourage everyone to go out and buy Simba Room and support and encourage yeah, the free league guys. But while you're at it, <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Look at the other free league games too. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Well, I want to pick Andy up on something. Uh, nothing <laughs> and, to do with Simba Room. Andy's going to hate that, you know. Andy I need you to check your dice it it sounds a bit like um, check your testicles for testicular cancer but that's not what I mean (laughs) check your dice bag (laughs) well it's important men of our age check their dice bags regularly because you know uh, sort of preventable dice problems are, uh, are, are things that you should prevent obviously Anyway, so and, and Andy said in that interview that he he's added uh, yeah. hit location into Simba Room, uh, which is great, and he and that he uses a RuneQuest uh, hit location dice for um, for that purpose. Mm. But he said it keeps coming up left leg, left and so everybody's yeah. walking around with a limp. Ah. Now, Andy might not know this, but I do. The first version of those dice, that's uh, Q Workshop, who make the dice for Free League, uh, made these dice for RuneQuest as mm, well. Yeah. And they come in two sets. One set is uh, the standard set of polyhedrals for general gameplay. And there's another set called Expansion Dice, which include a great big D20 for hit location. Bigger than the normal one, so that you can write words on each of the 20 faces. Ah. And... So that's the hit location dice. Uh, a number of faces have got abdomen. A number of them have got left leg, right leg, left arm, right arm, head, etc. Yeah. Based on the chances there are if you rolled a d20. The problem, though, with the very first printing of those dice is they had one extra left leg. So five <laughs> times out of 20 or 25% of the time, uh, you could get a left leg when it should only have been about 20% of the time. Right. So Andy... 
If your players are all walking around with a limp, I urge you to check your dice bag, look in there. I I think Q Workshop are still offering replacement dice to people that bought the first edition. Ah, okay, but, uh, right. You should check it out, and um, if it is, either keep it as a collector's item or send it back to Q Workshop for a new one. <laughs> um, cool. That's all I've got to say. Uh, although he's not playing Simbroom, is he? I mean. He's not playing. I mean, you. You know, I. I keep getting fed up with you about adding bloody rules and not playing <laughs> rules as written. But well, well, I. I did. I did. First time I ran Simbarim, I did run it rules as written, and I then. Yeah, and it was I then, great. I loved it. It was good, but I think. I mean, Andy makes some good points that I agree with around the um, randomizing damage from weapons. Uh, I think, and also. As a GM, I like to roll dice a little bit, so the whole player facing thing is, is fine. I, you know, I think that's absolutely fine, but it, it, it does imply that you're playing the game for the pleasure of your players and not necessarily for the pleasure of the whole group. So I, right. so I, so I think good. also, so I think also letting the GM roll a few dice is a good thing. But um, okay, yeah, I mean, it's great that you know, you know. Andy got into the game in exactly the same way that I did by loving the artwork in the first instance. Um, as he says, you know, he looks at games as uh, yeah a toolbox of stuff, and with any game, you would pick and choose the rules you want to uh, you want to use. Um, I think actually Simbaroom makes that even easier than most games because it's yeah it's got the core basics, but then a lot of the rules they they they, they say themselves these are entirely optional. If you want to go more deadly. Here are some rules that will help you go more deadly. If you that. want to be a bit more detailed, here are some rules that will help you do that as well. So I think it's um, it's a great game for that kind of thing, for moulding it to the to the sort of um, yeah you know, the, the 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 game mechanics that you want that suits you best. And he's yeah he's running a lot of games, and it sounds like his players are having a lot of fun. That is yeah. good. And the interesting thing I thought, you know, and Andy was never one for doing things in the setting that came with the game. No, that's true. When when we played, I mean, you know, we played uh, RuneQuest, but never in Glorantha, for example. No. Likely. And the fact that Andy is so inspired by the published setting, I think, speaks to the strength of the setting of. Yes, Simbaroom. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Let's move on. But, uh, yeah, we're thanks. Time. But, but thanks, Andy, uh, for taking the time to come and chat. But yes, yeah, let's move really on. Your, so you've got a... So what is this? Is this a adventure well, site? Let me explain a little. It's not quite an adventure site. It's a bit of an idea I had. Uh, those of you who listened to our last um, actual play, which finished last week, um, will have heard a bit of a discussion that we had about whether you guys could eat the griffin that you'd <laughs> killed. <laughs> yes. And... Uh, I ruled there and then, no, you couldn't. And in thinking about it some more and explaining it, I came up with a, a reason with a why. Where they do. Ah, and, okay. um, and, and this is kind of the reason why you shouldn't. <laughs> so uh, let's listen to that. Um, I feel, though, we ought to offer a bit of a trigger warning okay. here as well. But just before we start it, I, I must say that there is some content towards the end of this piece that some people may find upsetting. So um, if you uh, listen with caution and if you're beginning to pick up the clues and decide you don't want to listen to it, feel free to switch off. This is the last item. So the only thing we'll be saying afterwards is 
goodbye so you won't be missing much if you want to stop listening at that point cool good warning right then well i'm i'm uh i can't wait to hear why why we shouldn't be eating the the lovely delicious steaks that you can get from griffins the legend of Brightwater. before the blood mist a fearless warband was banished to the marshlands for a crime that they definitely did commit. These men and women survived and thrived, their antecedents living in the village of Brightwater. Today, wanted by the Rust Brothers, they survive as heroes for hire. If you have a monster problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find Brightwater, maybe you can hire the Monster Hunters. The village of Brightwater is not in the best part of the world. The lowland, swampy surroundings of Brightwater are frequently flooded and all the houses are built on stilts. But they are well maintained, comfortable, not poor looking and around the village, well-fed, athletic men and women stride across narrow bridges with easy confidence. There is a thriving market hall where travelling traders visiting the village can set up their stalls alongside the village's own craftspeople. Visiting adventurers will find a tailor here, a tanner, a smith and a bowyer, all selling goods of uncommon quality. There is an inn too, though travellers report disappointment in its fare. The ale is good enough, but the food is mostly vegetable stew, only occasionally improved with the meat of a rabbit or some similar rodent caught in the marshes hereabouts. By contrast, the smells of roasted flesh and sounds of good cheer coming from the village longhouse can make a visitor in the inn long for an invitation there. But though the villages here are polite and easygoing, such an invitation is never forthcoming. The longhouse and its delicious-smelling fare is strictly for villagers only. These are the famed monster hunters. Since the blood mist lifted, the men and women of Brightwater have earned a reputation as fierce hunters who prey upon the demons that flooded through the nexus and Zygopher's abominable creations. They relish the hunt, which they see variously as subsistence, sport and business. As a business, they sell their monster hunting services to surrounding villages. The fees they charge are high but flexible, taking most of what the village produces in a year, but leaving just enough to sustain the village in the next year. Despite the high cost, villagers are willing to pay. The monsters terrorising the villages are, after all, truly fearsome and will have killed previous hunting parties sent out by the villagers themselves. Indeed, Brightwater now sees travellers from more distant villages, even other kin, come seeking aid as the reputation of the monster hunters spreads. The Rust Brothers see the monster hunters of Brightwater as competition and would like to investigate them further and, if possible, induct them into the order or, if necessary, 
remove them entirely. But so far, their clumsy attempts to find the location of the Brightwater village have met with obfuscation and misdirection from those who rely on the monster hunter's services. When a creature is targeted by the monster hunters, the villagers of Brightwater organise the hunt as a sport. First, two or three scouts are sent to observe the creature and ascertain its habits. Then, depending upon what the scouts have learned, a hunting party is formed. This is normally made of up to five pickers, the master monster hunter, his or herself, and an apprentice who carries the final cut, a ceremonial halberd. A number of other villagers accompany the hunting party, including builders who will create a course, a series of obstacles designed to funnel the creature into an arena where the monster hunters do their work, and even, occasionally, a grandstand from which the client villagers can watch the kill. It is the picker's job to drive or tempt the creature down the course to the arena where the monster hunter and their apprentice wait. The preferred way to do this is on foot, armed with javelins, with which to weaken and enrage the monster. But if circumstances demand it, two of the pickers will be on horseback, and occasionally, for particularly tough monsters, the javelins will be replaced by heavy crossbows. Sometimes one of the pickers will even be a sorcerer. All their attacks are ranged, however. It is not their job to get close to the monster. Their job is to drive the monster to the monster hunter and to weaken it enough that the monster hunter can fight it in melee. Each monster hunter has their preferred weapon for melee combat, but at some point will always switch to the final cut, the halberd carried by the apprentice to finish the creature off. The apprentice never normally engages in combat, unless they are the last hunter standing, in which case they are raised to the rank of Master Monster Hunter. All the monster hunters eschew armour, preferring instead to fight scantily clad in cloth and leather, showing off their athletic physique. Everyone agrees that monster hunters are very attractive. But there is a dark secret behind their looks. During the blood mist and after, the villagers of Brightwater survive by feasting on the creatures they killed. Many such creatures, and especially the misgrown, are held together by the substance Mog. Not many people, other than Zygafer and later Zytera, know about Mog, but most people instinctively realise that meat from monsters is tainted and stay well clear. The villagers of Brightwater, though, had no such fear. They all have the fearless talent, and feasted hungrily on the chaotic flesh. Over the years, they even created myths of butchery, deciding without much evidence which part of the flesh are edible and which must not be eaten. And at first, their culinary courage seemed to be rewarded. They felt healthier, grew stronger, and yes, even became more good-looking, as monster flesh became a regular part of their diet. They even seemed to age more slowly. But then they learned the terrible cost of eating mog-tainted flesh. 
it poisoned not them, but their unborn children. All their children are born deformed, and most die within a few hours of birth. Only a few survive, and these are looked after well by their loving parents. But the village's collective shame means they keep their children hidden from visitors. The schoolhouse, where the women go to give birth and all the surviving children live out their lives, is a little way from the village's more public buildings, and visitors are prevented from getting too close. The villagers of Brightwater never explain the lack of children in public life, or the real reason why visitors only get vegetable stew while the natives feast on meat. They know that one day even the longest lived of them will be gone and the village of Brightwater will only be a memory. But if they live like heroes, that memory will be a legend. Yeah, thanks for that, Matt. And, um, you know, you know, hopefully the uh, the the bit about the, the effects of the, the demon, uh, demon meat uh, hasn't offended anybody or, or upset anyone. Um, but I think it's, it, you know, it's, it's a it's a good um, demonstration of um, unintended consequences of doing something that might seem like a good idea at the time, or um, how bad things can happen if you're not careful with uh, you know with what you're how you deal with stuff or how you how you do things. Um, I mean, but I thought it was it was kind of quite quite sort of light hearted to begin with, and I was sort of talking about oh, okay, this is the um, Forbidden Lands version of the A Team. We've got going obviously. on. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> well, seeing that you did say something like, um, you know, if you've got a monster problem and no one can help, if you can find them, then go and find the monster team or whatever. Well, um, I'll tell you, the, the story behind that is I'd written something as a legend that sounded a lot like that. And then I thought, that sounds a lot like the intro to the A team. So then I went back to find the text of the A-Team and modified my legend to be exactly like the, uh, <laughs> the, the um, opening text for the, the A-Team. <laughs> yeah, so I've just, um, got, I've just got the music going around my head now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the idea of the substance that you, you, in, you, you imbibe yes. when you eat this mog, is that something that's in the game elsewhere? Is that it is right? It's okay. hard to find, but right. I remember reading something about it when I read through everything, and um, and then when I was looking for it because I couldn't remember what the name of it was, um, I could remember not being that impressed by the name of it. In fact, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I knew there was a thing, and actually, when I was searching for it, it took some searching. It was a thing that uh, Zygafer uses to effectively glue his animals together in you know, magical sense. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I had, so had, I, visions, so had visions of like, you know, dogs and cats being stuck together and things. Yeah, well, I think I think <laughs> that's kind of the vision they want you to have, you know, particularly it, okay. things like griffins that are various animals. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Together. So the, um, uh, what do you call them? The mis, the misformed or... Right. Or something. Anyway, so I looked up all the references to uh, uh, Zygafer and I couldn't find it and Zytira and I couldn't find that. And I'm thinking, well, where is it? In the end, I thought, well, they would have used the word substance. So I, I searched ah. for every use of the word substance and found to it. find the word of the substance that they used. Ah. Um, uh, but yeah, Mog is the thing you want to search for if you want to find out more cool. about Mog. Cool. 
The other thing I thought was, am I am I going mad, or is there already a place called Brightwater in some of the freely well, stuff on Forbidden Lands? Have we? Have you? I don't. You, yeah, I'm pretty sure it isn't in Forbidden Lands now because I had exactly the same thought as you. Okay, it. Uh-huh. and um, and again, uh, I searched word searched through the PDF versions to see any record of it, and I must admit I haven't searched the Spire of Quetzal, so it could be in the Spire book, right? But I couldn't find anything there. But like you, I'm not sure. Not entirely convinced that there isn't another Brightwater yeah. somewhere <laughs> in the Free League verse. Well, it, it, it throws up actually quite an interesting idea that you could have a legend that says, go to Brightwater and find something lovely. And they actually end up going to the wrong Brightwater. <laughs> in, in yes. <laughs> either they want to find the monster hunters and they end up somewhere else, or they end up finding the monster hunters and... Now, is it, could there could there be a thing where the monster hunters do nasty stuff and force enemies to eat this kind of stuff to punish them or curse um, them? I, 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 my monster hunters are really heroic. Uh, they're, they're nice guys. You might also have picked guys, up the yeah. fact that these monster hunters are kind of pulpy. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was thinking about including a character here, and um, because I want them to be attractive, I was actually going to make a male or the female version of the character. So GMs could choose whichever uh, version their, they wanted, their yeah. players were most likely to be attracted to. And they were either going to be Magnus or or Magda. <laughs> and I imagine in my head, all the time I've been doing this, I've imagined some cheesy comic with Magnus, <laughs> Monster Hunter, across the top. Right, and some okay. kind yeah. of bare-chested Tarzan-type creature, uh, figure, heroic figure, um... Uh, knifing, knifing some horrible monster. So that that was kind of the idea I had behind it, and for that reason, I have made these guys exceptionally heroic, heroic to the point of stupidity, really. In that, yeah, you know, they do all this stuff without armor and things like that. Sort of, sort, um, of, tra- but, sort of tragically heroic, considering the tragically si- heroic. Situation well, they're they know in. their yeah. days are numbered, and they know that the only legacy they can leave is the legend, because they can't huh. have children or the yeah. children they have die so that was my story and um i don't think they would be mean but yeah i i do wonder whether the rust brothers maybe the fact that there may be more than one bright water is a reason why the rust brothers haven't taken them ah okay because they always they always go to the wrong bright water so the other bright water is really fed up with the rust brothers turning up (laughs) killing killing everyone saying monster hunters gonna kill you (laughs) we know you've got heroes here somewhere bring them out (laughs) bring out your heroes bring out your heroes and you see i think there is a potential story there in that the rust brothers might um might be able to make more use of the disabled children or the misshapen children that they find there in some horrific way that i don't even want to think about ah, okay now but they could if we want if we want darkness then we could play a adventure where the rust brothers do find them and uh and all sorts of horrible things happen oh or you could turn that on the other end that the, the rust brothers find them and see them as sort of divine signals from from rust and <laughs> yeah. then actually want to protect them and and build them up as their their icons for want of a better word well yes but just so there could be a the so there could be a kidnapping them. thing going on, maybe. But they're trying to kidnap them to give them for a better, their own good for, to give them a better yes. life, almost. And yeah, okay, lots of lots of opportunities. Um, so, would you? Are you thinking that you might like sort of like flesh this out into a proper adventure site? 
Or not for you guys, because no, I've but I mean, it for you maybe now, something, but, something. But I think I might, yeah. The, so um, I think I'd definitely like to workshop, write up. Maybe. Oh, for the free league workshop, mm. yeah. Um, uh, yes, this could be a bit of free league workshop if I could be a decent map maker uh, to, because uh. I've got this site mapped out in my head. It would need a couple of characters uh, uh, drawn up as well and some NPCs. And I've got half those stats kind of in my head. and yeah. So, yeah, it could be a thing that we could put on the Free League Workshop mm. down the line. In the meantime, though, I'll put what I've written so far on my blog. Cool. Excellent. Well, I think we've we've blathered on again for uh, a lot longer than perhaps we either expected to or had a right to. Uh, so I think, um, unless you've got anything else to say, Matthew, um, I think we should probably wind up for the day. Yes. I agree. Um, <laughs> that was a very forceful... It, yes! Uh, and uh, The other thing is, I don't know what we're going to be doing in three weeks' time, but I'm sure you'll enjoy it, listeners. <laughs> well, let's hope. Right, well, so it's uh, goodbye from Matthew. And it's a goodbye from me. And may the icons bless your adventures. You have been listening to The Effect Podcast, presented by Fiction Suit and the RPG Gods. Music stars on a black sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Did you notice that? I did the two runners thing there. I know. Very well done. Yeah. <laughs> I probably do it every time. It's not that and, we um, haven't done that before. Every yeah. time I think it's the first time I've done it. <laughs> well, when you get to our age, you get that problem. <laughs> <don't you? laughs>